It happens in the blink of an eye. It felt like we just dropped out of the sky and hit the ground. Immediately inside the plane, total chaos. A moment in time that changes your life forever. When you see the pictures of the car, I don't see how anyone could survive. Often these moments are just the beginning of a new world for the people who experience them. And you know the outcome is going to be drastic, but yet you still know that you have to do it. Each episode of Just a Moment examines someone's life-changing experience and explores how they navigated through that moment to discover a new normal. And I see beauty now. This is me. I promise you will hear compelling, raw stories that may help you navigate through your own life's journey, if you'll give me just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome. In this podcast, we take a look at moments of profound change in people's lives and how they navigate that change to come out on the other side. But what happens when that change leaves a hole in your heart that's so big, you're not sure you will ever be the same? That was the case for my guest on this episode. Julie Rubini was living her dream as a freelance writer, a wife to Brad, and a mom of three kids born in three years, daughters Claire and Kyle, and son Ian. Julie's story here centers around her oldest daughter, Claire, and we begin with a Girl Scout trip to Amusement Park Cedar Point when Claire was nine years old. It's Claire's first roller coaster ride. I'm sitting with my younger daughter, Kyle, beside me on the Gemini, and Claire and her friend are behind us. And Claire fainted on that first hill. Claire wore glasses. Um, I heard her friends screaming and turned around and was literally as much as I could be out of my seat, holding her because I was concerned about head injury and she's lifeless. And um, she came to after the ride was over, but she had gastric head. So we had to go to the emergency room. And you know, Claire had had um, a stomach bug that week, wasn't eating well. In fact, I remember that morning that you know, she, she felt and looked much better that morning, but you know, needing to make sure that she had some toast and, you know, banana, something to eat. She really hadn't been eating all that much. So we just kind of chalked it up as having come out of that little bug that, you know, blood sugar was off or whatever. And they really didn't test. They just, you know, sealed up her wound and said she could go back to see her point, but certainly, you know, nothing is, you know, she won't be able to ride roller coasters for the rest of the day. So we made the, the best of the day. And then and next spring, she was at school and uh, running on the playground, and she came again. And that began our journey, what I consider a very tragic comedy of errors in the world of medicine. Just a lot of missteps, tests read wrong, different doctor cardiologist consultations. It was a very sad journey that I had to work very hard to step away from because as a mom, that's your primary job is to take care of your kids. And um, I felt that as much as I tried to learn, as much as both Brad and I tried to learn and to understand that there was just so much that was unknown about Claire. Ultimately, we found a cardiologist who they diagnosed it. Uh, we felt comfortable with the diagnosis. 
and he felt that she could virtually do anything that any normal child could. And the doctor was aware of the fact that uh, we had made plans to go to this one night camp at Camp, camp Libby, uh, promoted as a first time camp for campers. Kyle, our daughter, other daughter went with her as well. Claire was ready to go. She's like, I said, well, let's get Kyle settled and then I'll come and we'll you know, get you into your area. And she's like, no, you know, I just, and the mom said, well, you know, sure, she can come with us. And so leap of faith, I thought she's 10. I really didn't want to cover. And I said, well, I'll come and check on you after, you know, and she's like, mom. <laughs> so we got that one last hug in. And um, she went skipping away with these new friends. And um, of course, there wasn't any contact that night. There, I don't even know if now they're allowed cell phones or not, but you know, let your kids have a camping experience. I remember that I didn't sleep well that night because it was storming. And I wondered about her, both of them. And woke up the next morning. I was slated to um, play in a golf match. Brad was off to work. He picked up the babysitter. He's just ready to go. And a mommy police officer showed up at my door. And he was incredible. He did not want to relay to me the news that Claire had passed at camp until Brad was at home, but I was insistent. Obviously not aware of what he was to share. And to say that my life is divided from that moment from before until now is an understatement. So something had happened to her at camp. They had called mommy police to let you know so that you would have somebody there with you when you heard that news. What um, happened to her, Julie? Well, what we knew and what was revealed as the truth over time served as that impetus to change up the nightmare, the real in my brain. We were told that she died in her sleep and that was not the case. And unfortunately, if things had been different at camp, if she had been attended to, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. We'll never know. So um, I don't really want to get into the particulars as far as her actual, how, how she died. But suffice it to say that if she again had been tended to as we had full confidence that she would have been given the circumstances and given as a helper with Girl Scouts. I was never a leader, but I helped out our leaders in knowing all of the protocol put in place for even just doing any kind of, you know, going to see the point, going in, doing any kind of field trip, everything that was put in place that I had every bit of confidence that I revealed. July 6th of 2000. I'm interested to know about your, your grieving process as a mom, Julie, because this is not supposed to be the way that this happens. We are not supposed to be burying our children and how you got through that grief. I am blessed by an incredible husband and partner, Brad. I had two other children who were, Kyle, our daughter was eight, and our son Ian six at the time. 
they gave me reason to get up every morning when there was a time that I didn't feel motivated to do so. But that wasn't acceptable. And for me, I've always turned to books whenever there's something bigger than me. Through all of my challenges in life, I just find books on the topic and read and try and understand and relate and learn. So was the case with this, where I read two books that were actually each gifts to me. The one is titled The Bereaved Parent, written by Harriet Sarnoff Schiff, who also lost a, she lost a son at a similar age to Claire, and it was a heart-related scenario, too. And she wrote that, the words that she wrote that really resonated with me was that, we had a choice as bereaved parents to either merely survive or truly live. And that really struck a chord. And then the other was when bad things happen to good people. And Rabbi Harold Krishner, his words suggested that we had to get a point for whatever we experience in life, had to get to the point of acceptance. And instead of questioning why whatever has happened to us, that we, the question should be what? Now what do I do with this? And, um, and then I read so many great books that I had to stop and I cut myself off and that's when I discovered um, Janet Ivanovich. <laughs> Her fun books and that funny grandma and her one for the money, you know, that whole whole series, which so yeah. very intense reading to what my friend calls brain candy, you know, sixty. <laughs> um, so reading, you know, hearing those, reading from those who had walked through some very difficult and tragic experiences, including those who had experienced the death of a child, uh, having an incredible circle of friends. I have, goodness, a dozen women in my life who have literally held my hand through this experience. I have often joked that dearest friends of mine arrived at the house as word was getting out and doing everything from, I mean, they're all very strong, powerful, professional women and they got grief central in shape you know, they, they were answering the phone and they were organizing meals, which was very hard for me to accept. And, you know, but people just wanted to do something for us. We have always both been very social and had all of these little pockets and corners of our lives for people just rising to the occasion and just wanting to help. And um, so those friends had offered to me that first day that they would be at the house for as long as I needed them to be and in whatever capacity they needed to be. And I joked at a presentation recently where I said, I just kicked them out last week. <laughs> <laughs> They've been there for 10, 12 years. <laughs> you out. Geez, I should have had one of them run the sweeper or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I can't say enough about that circle of friends and Brad has friends too, that they, we did go to several bereavement support groups. And I think support groups are incredible for individuals who are in that 
place in that time and maybe don't have that network that we did um, where they can talk about those who they've lost. And, and there are some wonderful groups that are specific to parents who have lost a child because having now buried a sister and both parents, I can tell you there's nothing compares to the loss of a child as far as that depth of pain and that depth of love. And um, so the bereavement support groups for us weren't the answer simply because we had that network of friends. And honestly, some of what we witnessed in, in the groups were individuals, parents who were in a place that we didn't wanna be 10, 20 years down the road. Again, it was not acceptable to just merely survive with having two other kids who deserved to have as much a normal life as Claire had. I mean, we had an incredibly happy life. As you say, I was living the dream. It was hard, you know, going from being a professional to, you know, constantly changing diapers and bottles and, you know, all of the physical as well. Job ever, hardest job ever, being a mom. But, you know, wouldn't have traded it for the world and, you know, feel very blessed. I've known other couples though, who have lost a child and had a network of support and still did not have the happy outcome or solid outcome that you and your family have had. Marriages split up over lost children. Um, Other children get lost in the mix sometimes. Was that a a conscious effort on your part? Did you, was that a plan that you put in place? How did you and Brad kind of come to the conclusion, we're not going to let that happen to our family? I've often said that for all the accolades that we've received in our recognition and our tribute to Claire, that I'm most proud of our relationships as a family going through the hell that we went through. That Brad and I were very determined that our relationship, which was strong from the very beginning, would remain strong and potentially become stronger, which it has. You know, if Claire would not have stood for something, it would have been the fact that she would not have been happy if her physical absence in our life caused our family to break apart, for Brad's and my relationship to break down, for our relationship with our other kids to break down. And so I often say that the tribute is wonderful, but what we've accomplished as a family is what I'm really most proud of. And still to this day, we have incredibly close relationships with our children. Our daughter is in Atlanta, our son is in Denver. They're way too far away, but we all make a conscious effort to get together as much as we can, even during the pandemic times. And Brad and I still that strong bond of friends and lovers and everything that you would ever want and expect out of a relationship. Now, has that always been hunky-dory? Heck no. You know, it's hard. I mean, maintaining and encouraging a relationship and a relationship to thrive under normal circumstances over a long period of time is difficult. But then throw this incredible tragedy and trauma into a relationship And you're right, there's a huge percentage of families who fall apart. And um, we knew that we were up against the odds and it was kind of like the two of us grabbing each other's hands and saying, okay, we're all here 
here we are, here we come. And it's taken time and communication and acceptance of the fact that everyone grieves differently in their own way and in their own time. And I have always said, you know, no matter how you walk this walk, as long as you do so in a healthy way, be kind to yourself, be good to yourself, take care of yourself. It's all right. There's no, you know, whatever one does or, or doesn't do, as long as you do so in a way that he's trying to move forward through what is the most difficult scenario, situation, tragedy, experience that one would ever go through. And I would say that out of that, one also gains strength to know that we have faced the ultimate together and come out of it together. And not to suggest that it's ever over because still to this day I'll hear a song. Now friends are getting married and having babies and we won't ever have that experience before. But Kyle is getting married next summer, 22, 2022. And we're very excited about that. So as always, you know, we hold on to the memories and celebrate for life and celebrate our lives together. And I'm just so very grateful because it so could have gone in another direction. And it took, I will share, we went to counseling together. It was not very long. The woman was reminiscent of Dr. Ruth. <laughs> Oh my God, there, there was no subject that was left off the table. I mean, she really helped us open up and dig into some very intimate topics and subjects. There was anger. I was very angry at Brad. I don't even know for what, but I did something that I had never done before. And after you hear the story, you'll know I will never do again. We were in our home in Mommy, where we raised our kids, had a small master bath. We were both in the bathroom. I was not by the door. I was by the shower. He was between me and the door. And he said something that made me so mad. Now I was raised with four brothers and one tough sister. So that's what you did. You slugged it out. I mean, literally got upset. You slugged it out. He was done. You know, I don't have time to hold on to things or anything. So, um, I hit him. I wound up, I, you know, direct right into his shoulder and the look on his face, it took all that he could not to strike back. And I knew that. And that look scared me knowing that I had done what I had done. I couldn't, I mean, I'm just, I'm not that kind of person, but he just, that's how intense the anger can be. And, the, and so I, in telling that story, I share that I learned some things. One, again, never, ever, ever do that again. And I never have. And number two, if I would ever consider it, make sure I had an exit because I could probably outrun it. <laughs> <laughs> he was standing in front of your doorway. <laughs> He's a big guy. Brad is six foot five. To add to this equation, for people who don't know us, Brad is a really big guy. And I'm only like five, six. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know what I was thinking. And, and again, that's, um, but I think that was a turning point for us too. You know, as a writer there, uh, 
there is something called the Freytag's Pyramid, or, you know, also known as the Plot Mountain, where you have these various, you know, an inciting incident, you, you have exposition at the beginning, you have an inciting incident, and then you have, you know, these conflicts and resolution and ultimately bringing up to the climax. And then, you know, the story kind of ends as it will end. And honestly, our story has read that way, but there's just been ups and downs and, you know, it's really just weathering those downs together and this being the most significant of all and to allow each other again to communicate, express those feelings, to cry many, many, many tears over the years, to laugh together, you know, to really celebrate, well, to dance together, to, you know, life is just, as we learned in the most tragic of ways, it's too short. There's no but it had to take some time for you to get to that point. Uh, how long was your where you just felt that heaviness and it was really hard for you to smile and laugh and celebrate those types of things. Because I can just imagine that it has to be such a weight on you when that happens. Little steps, gradual steps. I remember feeling that the first time that I really laughed out loud, you feel almost a certain amount of guilt. You know, it's interesting that Brad and I just recently, as we have upon occasion, we have had conversations with other bereaved parents who are new to this experience and recalling those really hard, dark times. And Brad shared that three years after Clara's death, uh, we had bought a motorhome. We had had a travel trailer with the intent of getting the kids to all 50 states. And after losing Claire and having this revelation that, A, it wasn't happening. I mean, travel plans were put on hold. We were supposed to be going out west with her while she was still with us. And um, but by golly, three years later, we bought a motorhome and we took three weeks and went out west. And both Brad and I felt that was where we found our souls again. We just having that condensed, intensive time together as a family and at that point, you know, still hurting, still recovering, still grieving, but the days were lighter. And we saw Claire's favorite color is purple. And we saw lots of purple, still see lots of purple. It's crazy how sometimes a purple crayon will be present itself or purple golf ball or just crazy little, I have this collection of little purple items that just come into my life and I just thank Claire for letting me know that she's she's there she'll always be there you know you never they're they're always in your hearts whether they're physically with you or not in fact you shared a story with me many years ago Julie about the computer printer oh <laughs> oh that was crazy one of the craziest um so that fall after we lost Claire, Ian, the youngest, also went to school full time. He was in first grade. Such a hard transition from, you know, having three kids at home during the summertime, seeing Claire, and then both of the kids gone during the day. That was really, really hard for me. And it was at the point that I figured I needed to do something. I considered a number of options, but I would, something I was doing during that time was to send 
emails off to family who many of them were spread across the country and to kind of keep them aware of how we were doing and what we were up to. It was an exercise in helping me move forward as well and sharing just little things that were great, challenges, etc. And I, within a, I would say a month or two after her death, I was writing about how it was the little things that I missed about her. And I wrote how I would recall her sitting on my lap. We would read to the kids every night and I would read to them during the day. I mean, reading books was always a huge thing in our family. And Claire sitting on my lap and, you know, having just had a bath and smelling her freshly shampooed hair. And it was just such a vivid memory for me that I could almost experience her there with me. And I made myself cry with my words. I, I mean, I'm just sobbing and I didn't have any tissues at my computer station. So I got up to get a tissue and I came back into the room and the printer was printing something. And I thought that's odd because I had had the computer on for a while and, and the printer was on too. So it wasn't like I had just fired it up and there was something. So I pulled out the sheet that, and I thought, well, that's odd. There's nothing on it. And then I pulled it all the way out. And in the upper left-hand corner was one simple heart, tiniest little heart that you'd almost miss if you weren't. And, and then I really felt I had to go get another tissue because I thought, oh, and that happened several times when I was going through that experience where I was sharing with family what was happening in the Rubini household. And then out of nowhere, this little heart print. So I sent several of them to family somewhere here. I still have one. I should actually frame it up to serve as a reminder mm-hmm. that again, there's there's more to life than what we even know because the circumstances and situations, again, not only those little purple objects, but that story and things that have happened in my life, I chalk up to the hand of Claire watching over them. That actually happened several times, the hearts on the computer, right? Yeah. So, I, and I, I love to think about that. I love when my dad, my grandparents visit me in my dreams or when I see something that reminds me so strongly of them or smell something, um, my, my grandpa and boxwood. He was so proud of the boxwood that lined his front yard and he trimmed those things. They were perfectly cut. So I, I love that. And I do think that there are ways that people who are not with us on earth anymore can reach out to us. And I, I hold on to that because it's comforting for me. Right. Was that comforting? Is that comforting to you? Absolutely. And the same holds true with dreams. I have not had a clear dream in a while, but um, I had had a number of dreams that were all very vivid and very comforting. And a neighbor of mine had encouraged me to go to a local church where there was a professor who talks about and analyzes dreams and shared that, you know, for each of us, whatever is in our dreams is unique to each of us. And that dreams is a semi-conscious state where that other world can reach out to us. And it was very comforting to me to think that, you know, I could 
allowing my defenses down and being in sleep state that Claire could really, in her own little way, could reach out to me and let me know in every one of the dreams, it was very reassuring that she was fine, that she loved me, that she missed me. I woke up crying from one of those dreams where I, again, was holding her and just feeling her on my shoulder and, you know, woke up with tears. I was crying in the dream and I was crying in real life. And yet it's just such a gift. I just feel like it's a gift when that happens. And I just cherish that, those times and those memories. And it's almost like new experiences that you're having with people that aren't here anymore, which is somehow comforting. Right. And how important it is that the hardest grief is a double-edged sword, that it's so hard to process it, to move forward through your loss and through grief. But it's so important because if you don't, you've seen people who are just stuck and they not only have shoved down the really hard feelings, that anger, that sadness, the pain, but they've shoved down the good stuff too, the memories. And, you know, I felt it very important. Brad and I both felt it very important to be able to address that ourselves as well as support our kids in being able to do the same. And our kids grieved very uniquely and differently and in their own time. And as a mom, that was an important lesson to me too, that just because one wasn't necessarily as open with feelings, that didn't mean that they weren't there. And many conversations over the years with the kids about Claire and about our loss and about our memories. And now that they're both in their mid late twenties, it's really an amazing experience to still have those conversations. And as we would share when they were little, we called them the good, the bad, and the ugly, because we did not want to create a standard. You know, Claire was not a perfect kid. She was, as um, a dear friend of mine suggested that Claire and I could really kind of bump heads. And the reality was that she was very much like me. She was very outspoken, very direct, very animated, dramatic. Um, very Even her looks, she looked a lot like you too, Julie. She did, yes. yes. And um, so we would recall the reality of Claire as she was as a child, as opposed to putting her on a pedestal because we did not want to create the standard that the kids thought that they had to live up to either. You know, that Claire was just, Claire was Claire. Yeah. And um, good, bad. That's such an important point too, because we do tend to kind of idolize people after they're gone in that way. So I can imagine, especially with the other children, that that was really important to be able to do. You have always loved reading books. That's been a solace for you. I mean, as a kid, it was something that was exciting for you. You grew up that way. You shared that love of reading with your children. And you were able to turn your grief into something so positive and so amazing. The event called Claire's Day that has become such a widely anticipated event in our area. Tell us where that idea came from and why you thought it was important to do something like that. 
Brad and I felt fairly early on in our journey that was important to pay tribute to Claire. And for both of us, it just kept coming back to books that she loved reading. She loved sharing stories. I love hearing stories from her classmates and from her teachers about how she would share books that she had borrowed from the library, either the school library or the mommy library, and would, without being asked, would do book reports or would share, you know, her excitement over the book. And, but they couldn't request it yet because she wasn't quite done with it. So <laughs> when she was done with it, she would let them know. Um, just amazing stories about how she just loved reading and loved sharing that passion. She was a very accomplished reader. At the age of 10, she was reading high school level. As a parent, it was difficult to find books that were challenged or challenging to her, but was also appropriate. appropriate. Yeah. And um, so I had some reservations about introducing her to Harry Potter, but you know, the, the, the stories had just begun to be published and um, we read quite a bit of the first one together. And, um, and then she just took off from there as far as so she just was passionate about reading and books and so I kept the grad and I thinking that we wanted to somehow remember her and then amazingly six months after she died we were flying down to Jacksonville to attend my oldest niece's wedding and in my seat pocket was the Time magazine I had a book of course for me to read but I thought I hadn't seen the Time magazine in a while so I picked it out of that seat pocket and I started leafing through it and I came across an article about former then First Lady Laura Bush and the Texas Book Festival. And as I read the article, I mean, book festivals were just kind of becoming a thing then, 20 some years ago. Mm -hmm. And as I read through the article, I was like an epiphany, a divine intervention, whatever you want to consider it. That what I loved about the story was that the festival focused on and featured Texas-born authors ranging from children's to adult authors or those who had written about Texas. You know, being going back to that freelance writing career, I was always very proud of having byline and knowing that that was something that I had written and to share that excitement with the kids when the articles would come out and you know, appropriate most of them where I would read the story, you know, the articles of the kids and they knew about these experiences and meeting these people. And I thought it was important the same to know who had written and who had illustrated the books that we were reading together as a family. So we would go to that back lab and learn about those authors and illustrators. And through that exercise, I knew we had a wealth of talents in Ohio and Michigan and Indiana and the surrounding states. So I read this and I'm crying. I am just sobbing as I'm finishing up the article. I turned to Brad across the aisle. I handed him the magazine and I said, Brad, this is what we're going to do to honor Claire. And then he read the story and he's sobbing as well. And, and then I remember that weekend, we just shared the story with this recently bereaved couple about I remember during the wedding reception, I felt just this great sense of euphoria. My family was probably a little worried about me because I was just really excited about this idea. And yet, you know, it just seemed like such an answer. And I, so immediately when we got home, I reached out to friends 
and co-former co-workers and ask them to help me in this initiative. And then from there, of course, to have a children's book festival, you need to invite children's book authors and illustrators. Back then, they didn't have websites like we do now. You know, you, I, I went to Maine Library. I went to the Ohioana organization that maintains the Library of Ohio Authors and Illustrators and used them as resources. And um, I remember asking this committee that we formed how many I should invite. You know, I was thinking maybe 10 or 12. And, and they said, well, just you have a list of 25 and buy them all. I don't know that they'd all show up. Well, they pretty much all did. <laughs> so, um, so from the very beginning, and then also a significant, uh, the, I would say that Brad's part of the equation is that he, unbeknownst to me when we first met, um, because he would read and he would read things to me. He is dyslexic and it was not really diagnosed until late in life. And I'm very proud to say that he is still now working through it and he's working with a tutor. But so in recognition, Brad said from the outset that we needed to do something to recognize children who were like him, who were smart kids, were great kids, but there were some obstacles in the way in their reading journey. And Claire was being that one again to encourage reading that we came up with this concept of Claire's Awards for Reading Excellence or the CARE Awards, which are given to children not chosen as, their, as the best readers in their classes by their principals or their teachers, but the kids who have shown the most improvement in their reading. And many of these kids have never received or I shouldn't say never, but you know, typically don't receive academic accolades or uh, you know, they're just not celebrated because of these challenges that they have. And then something within them and through the intervention of an adult helps them to rise. And the stories that we learn through these care awards are just so incredible. And you know, we're we're helping to support self-esteem and self-confidence and it is. And I, I'm just going to say for people that have never attended a Claire's Day or don't know exactly what it is, you can hear from authors, you can get them to autograph your books. It is like the greatest school book fair ever because there are all sorts of books available for purchase. And then you have the authors and illustrators there that are able to autograph them for you or autograph them. I can't tell you how many I gave as gifts to children in my life or even adults in my life because I think that is really special to have a signed book. So you meet the authors, you meet the illustrators, there's music going on, but these awards that they give out every year are such a huge part of the special component of Claire's Day, which Julie, these kids come dressed in their Sunday finest. I mean, it is an event for them to come. Some of them have never earned an award in their life and their chests are puffed out and their shoulders are back and they are so excited to get those awards. It makes me want to cry just thinking about it because I have been there. I've, I've been, had the pleasure of being able to emcee some of those events with you. And, and I have just seen the transformation in the kids myself. And it's so exciting. What do you think Claire would think of that? Oh my gosh. I've been asked that question a number of times over the years, and I think she would just be so thrilled. 
I, just as you were talking about the excitement of kids, I remember one year a child came up from behind me, a care award winner, and he must have, well, I wear a shirt, so he would have known there's, they, they, on our t-shirts, they, they write Claire's mom and Claire's dad on the back, so people know who we are. And um, this child came up from behind me and all of a sudden just gave me this big hug off from behind and back. And that was a Claire hug. I mean, Claire was famous for just kind of coming in when you didn't expect it and blindsiding you with a hug. And I just, I thought again, that's Claire. You know, this, uh, I can just feel her. I see her in the face of the kids. I see her when I see kids tucked in a corner of the library or on the grounds reading a book. I just know that she's there and she would just be so thrilled. And she also probably have a little sense of what me, this is all for me. And, and it's all in honor of her. And it's certainly for the community and the community has been incredibly supportive and the growth and the changes of the organization have been quite a lesson for me as an individual and, um, you know, that's been a journey in itself. And to know that for the care awards alone, we started out that very first year in 2002 with having 25 kids that we recognized and giving each of them a personalized certificate and then a book that we had chosen for them. And now these last couple of years, we've recognized over 1200 kids and they still get that personalized certificate but they get a coupon to choose their very own book. So they have the power to decide. Um, and one most heartwarming story a number of years ago, a child um, picked out a book to give to his teacher who had nominated him. And once we learned that story, we made sure that he got his own book as well. I mean, how, how incredible is that? That is incredible, but the pride and listen, the gratitude, right? You can't do anything in life if you can't read. And that is just, I mean, your success is just not going to be what it should be if you don't know how to read. So what an impactful way for you to honor your daughter. And, and it, it, it makes me very emotional when I think about it because I've been there and I've seen it and I know how impactful it is. Is it cool for you to be able to meet the authors and the illustrators that you bring in every year for these? Very much so. And I would say at the start, I was a bit intimidated by them all. I mean, these are real life, very prolific, traditionally published authors and illustrators. And then I got to know them as friends and realizing that they're just people too. You know, many of them are, have, many of them have been writers all their lives. Many of them come from backgrounds of being educators, you know, just incredible people. And the more that I would communicate with them, again, I was at the helm for 10 years and handling, I can say handling, but the communication with our authors and illustrators was always something that I enjoyed and I was always responsible for. And uh, through the communication in my emails, I had several of them that recognized my writing talent and said, you know, we need to, I say they literally drew me into their world where they suggested that I should be doing something with my writing and an opportunity presented itself to write this wonderful picture book titled Hidden Ohio, which came out in 2009. And um, it, it went through like five different printings. I mean, very successful, just kind of regional 
book and was featured as the Ohio Arts Council Governor's Book at their annual awards luncheon in, wow. 2000, in 2012. And, um, you know, I visited a whole lot of schools sharing my passion and love for our home states and all that we had experienced as a family because we traveled through the state quite a bit and I, I had traveled quite a bit through you know, my working days too. And uh, then that opportunity led me to understand what being a children's book writer, author is all about and uh, the time and the work necessary to really kind of make it a career, if you will. And yeah, I not be fooled by the name children's book, right? Because the, they are often more difficult to put together and get out than an, an adult book is. Well, the whole process of even being traditionally published is so that could be a whole different podcast. It's just, it's not an easy. And I was very fortunate in that, again, through a connection made at Claire's Day, um, publisher reached out to me, commissioned me to write Hidden Ohio through a connection at Claire's Day and a friendship that developed with my friend, uh, Michelle Houts, who is the editor of the series that Ohio University Press is publishing titled Biographies for Young Readers. I had the opportunity to write three biographies for middle grade young adult readers. Through that opportunity, I became aware of an educational publisher and now ultimately leading to a really cool opportunity that the Library of America is publishing a collection of Virginia Hamilton novels to be released this September. I, my second of my three biographies I wrote for Ohio University Press was on Virginia Hamilton. And Virginia is the most honored author of children's literature ever. I never had the opportunity to meet her, but I attended the conference that is still ongoing in her honor at Kent State University. I've met her husband, Arnold. He has become a friend through the process. He was so incredibly supportive of both my um, writing as well as my passion for Virginia. And uh, Arnold has come to Claire's Day. Their son, Jamie, who wrote a few books, has come to Claire's Day. So it was really kind of a full circle sharing her story. And yet to do so, I think I was rather naive because I was aware of her works. I'd read some of her works, but I didn't realize how significant Virginia Hamilton is in the world of children's literature still to this day. And she died in 2002. Um, so again, never had the opportunity to meet her. She never had the chance to come to Claire's day, I'm sure if she was still with us, she was just 68 when she died of breast cancer in 2002. And I'm sure she would have been with us at Claire's day. The love and support that I feel from the community that loves and supported Virginia Hamilton is amazing. Um, I just did a presentation, a Zoom presentation, because that's what we're down to now, right? Uh, that was sponsored by Ohio Communities Council and the Ohio History Connection, along with the National Afro-American Museum and Cultural Center. And the feedback that I got from individuals still emails filtering in about how much they appreciate me sharing that significant impact that she had on individuals. So Library of America opportunity, literally an email fell out of the sky asking me to consider that they wanted to have a conversation with me to consider serving as the editor on this project. And I'm blown away. I'm honored. I'm having so much fun rereading her work and um, being a part of the project. It's just really special. So. 
You also wrote about another Toledo treasure, Millie Benson, who was one of the original uh, writers of the Nancy Drew books. And she also is just a local heavyweight in authorship, right? Yeah. Oh, the Millie story was so much fun. And it was the first that I wrote for Ohio University Press. It was a baptism by fire project. I have said that writing those books was like a, a thesis on steroids. I literally contracted for the book and six months later had the book researched and written and first draft in. Um, I guess that's paying a bit of tribute to Millie because she wrote so 23 of the first 30 Nancy Drew books. She wrote 135 children's books altogether. And all the while she's that newspaper, you know, that dogged newspaper reporter for the Toledo Blade. And, um, you know, she was originally from Iowa uh, she married a man who was with the Associated Press and eventually that his role took them from Iowa to Cleveland and eventually to Toledo. And there had never been a biography of Millie Benson written for any age group. There was a wonderful book that was written about the role of Millie Benson and Harriet Stratemeyer, who was the daughter of the man who actually created Nancy Drew. Uh, there was a book that I referred to in my research I went out to Iowa, I met with family, I sat in Millie's home. Uh, University of Iowa was incredibly supportive, interviewed many of her friends here, here and far away. Uh, Millie was very beloved, but she was, she, Millie was um, a woman after my own heart. She said what she meant and she meant what she said. And At a time when women didn't do that too often, right? She pretty forged her own path and I think that must have been so special for you because Nancy Drew books were so special to you when you were growing up. I would ride my little banana seat bicycle from our country home up to the bookmobile a mile and a half away. And I had that basket and I would fill them up with Nancy Drew's and always encourage the bookmobile librarian to make sure that there were, you know, new mysteries, you know, for the next time around. And um, yeah, so I, I loved I love Nancy Bruce. I love mysteries of Ed, Ed, Edgar and Cole, but that, you know, so again, very full circle that given this opportunity to write about women who I'm inspired by, and they didn't necessarily have to be women for the series. They have several men in the series, but I just find women's stories and there's not enough women's stories out there for, you know, girls and boys to read about these individuals who were before their time in many ways. The third was Christine Brennan, USA Today sports columnist, and of course, native to Leon. Amazing in her own right, as far as what she accomplished in knocking down those doors and those walls in the First world. First woman allowed in the locker room at the Washington Redskins when she was covering them for the post. Can you imagine? No. What and she had to put up with, yeah. She was like 22. I mean, you know, I can't imagine. Can you remember what you were like at 22? I just can't imagine that, I guess, environment and um, that culture, I guess, and walking into that and having to write her story. I titled it Eye to Eye because she would, you know, her father's advice was just to, you know, when she was in the locker room, just to keep eye contact with them because this man would try and pull some things on her that weren't very, you know, basically towels from their way. So they were really kind of just having given Christine hard time to make her uncomfortable, right? Absolutely. Total yeah. maneuvers. Right. And um, 
as well as the fact that she's quite tall. She's like six foot tall. So she could literally look eye to eye with these um, in, in eye to eye references, you know, basically holding people accountable to, which Christine very much does in the world of sports. So she was fun to get a glimpse into her diaries as a child and to have conversations and interviews with her. Um, it was very, very fun and special too. You can get these books wherever you buy books, but if you'd like to learn more about any of them or see everything that's available, Julie does have her own website, julierubini.com. And we will make sure to put the link in the uh, description under the podcast, Julie, so people can check those out. And I know you just had a, another book released um, on psychology for young people as well, which is exciting. And that is kind of, a departure from all the other things that you've written. Absolutely. And that was a learning experience too, and working with an educational publisher as opposed to more of a trade. I mean, I worked with the university press, so now it'd be really cool. I have a proposal out there on um, one subject that's very near and dear to my heart, a group of women, I won't reveal anymore, but a group of women in the, in the realm of sports um, whose story has never been told. And then I'm working on a, another proposal on a woman who um, really was under the radar, but she played a significant role in the world of the environment and conservation, which is always a very relevant topic. And I now have a literary agent, which I'd never had before. Alec is with uh, Writer's House, which is one of the largest um, agencies and most renowned agencies. He's doing a great job in trying to help get my stories in the hands of some larger publishers. So ultimately more kids will read these stories of inspiring women that might inspire them to consider different career paths and opportunities too. This latest book that you wrote is called Psychology, Why We Smile, Strive and Sing. Did you call upon your own experience for any of that as you were writing, going through the grief, coming out on the other side, you know, knowing what your kids went through when they lost their sister. Absolutely. And it was really my, I'm naturally curious and I'm still very curious about why it is we do the things we do and how is it that one makes the choice to either survive or to truly live? How, how is it that we as individuals have that power within to do that? Recognizing not everybody does. And there's even you know, for me, it was just a matter of, again, I had a family, I had kids, I needed to do something to, to process everything in a positive way. And Claire's Day became that and more so And writing books is almost a tribute to that too, to my family and to Claire for their incredible support in everything that I do. And um, someone once noted that if they had one word to describe me, it would be resilience. And that was the first that I'd ever really considered that word in my own personal vocabulary as far as, a, a, I mean, I just didn't, to me, it was just, I would do what I would do. And, and so we've explored resiliency and that topic is addressed in this psychology book, which is intended for middle grade and high school students to really understand what's going on within their brains, what isn't going on within their brains, you know, just, brain is such an incredible machine and um, things that we can do to help support what we're learning in our brain and the development of our brains, things that we shouldn't be doing 
you know, into our bodies at a young age or any age for that matter. And ultimately winding through to, you know, that positive being mindful, being present, doing things that one can do to try and encourage resiliency because we all have our stuff. We all go through life is just not easy for anyone. And if it looks like it is from the outside and this social media world of Instagram and Facebook, you know, I try to be real with most of my posts. I'm very positive, but I also share my grief and I share my journey and I share, you know, Christmas time, I posted a picture of the Christmas tree that we were suggested, we were, it was suggested that we do something different that first Christmas and Claire's tree was that answer where to this day, we're still putting up this little tree that has all these little Claire mementos on it. And it's now, it was our 20th Christmas this year. This past year was very significant. It was hard. Um, and I, I mean, the, the love and support coming back from that. And most people are recognizing grief, death, particularly death of a child. is not an easy thing to talk about. It's not an easy thing to be a part of. It's not an easy thing to hear about. I'm very fortunate that, yeah, I have a lot of people that who are around me who have continued to help guide me all along. I'm sure when Claire died, that it was not even possible for you to look in the future and think of a time when you were gonna be the same again or happy again or laugh again at that moment. Looking back 20 years, what would you tell yourself in that moment, Julie, about being hopeful for coming out on the other side? I think I would have told myself what I've rather known all along is that it was going to be okay. You know, it was going to be hard, but, uh, you know, just keep hanging in there and don't be afraid to lean on those who are around you and surround yourself by those who support me and, um, you know, just know that for every day that goes by, it's going to get a little bit easier. And you need more words of, um, was it Dory? Just keep swimming. You know, just, just keep swimming. In a moment, Julie Rubini's life was shattered when she lost her 10-year-old daughter, Claire. But there were so many amazing moments in the conversation for me in how she navigated that devastating situation. First, making the choice to not just survive, but to truly live. And that really can be applied to so many traumatic or heartbreaking situations in our lives. What an incredible way Julie and Brad have found to remember their daughter with the Claire's Day event by sharing her passion for reading, they are helping Claire impact thousands of other young kids to realize their potential. You can find more information on Claire's Day and the books Julie has authored at julierubini.com. I've put a link in the description to make it easy for you. And finally, this idea of resilience, to adjust and recover from adversity and to just keep swimming even on the days when you're not sure you're up to the task. I hope something from this conversation may help you face challenges in your own life. If so, please do share the podcast and subscribe. I have many more amazing stories to share with you in just a moment.